Good morning. I hope you're all doing well this morning. If you want to turn to John chapter 13. Uh, so now a request this past week to be praying for June. Uh, he's actually been released from the hospital and is back at home. Um, and so thankful for that. And he wanted me to, to share that. John chapter 13. And this morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 17. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you were clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day and for the opportunity to come together and to worship you and to study your word. Lord, I pray for us that we would be pointed to the truth of your word and of the gospel. Lord, I am so thankful that June Kaufman is back home this morning and want to just continue to pray for him and his recovery and his health. Lord, I pray for him and Ruby. Lord, I know it's been a long several weeks and I just pray for your blessings on this couple who have been such a blessing to the church and to the community. Lord, I want to pray for the Rinkenberger family on the loss of Larry's brother Jim this past week. Lord, I pray for Larry on the loss of a sibling and I pray for the rest of the family. Lord, as they lose somebody undoubtedly very dear to all of them. Lord, I pray for your nearness, Lord, and that we can mourn with those who mourn. Lord, Lord, death is a scourge to humanity. And in the face of that, may we look to the eternal life that we are invited into through the Lord. Lord, we pray for our time again as we study in your word today. And that we would be encouraged and exhorted 
to live holy and godly lives. In Jesus' name, amen. It's hard to ignore a major event. I think I've said this before, but the night before you get married is not just any other night. Because you know that it's before the biggest day of your life. The night before a surgery is not like any other night. You might have a big meal before you have to go into your fast. But if it's a big surgery, and one that's going to take a lot of time or recuperation or a lot of pain, you know what's on the horizon the next day. I've used this example before, but when I came to this church to candidate to be the pastor, the night before that sermon is not just like any other night. You know that there's something significant on the horizon. Big events demand our focus and attention. They weigh on us. For Jesus, in John chapter 13, it's the night before the day when he would go to the cross. And what's the first thing that John records? It's Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. That's what Jesus does before he dies. Continuing in the Gospel of John this morning. I want to make a brief point to orient us to where we are in this gospel. We're beginning chapter 13, which begins the second major section of the gospel of John. I've been saying that for the last couple of weeks as we wound down chapter 12, that John's gospel is essentially two main sections. The book of signs, which is the public ministry of Jesus. And that ended last week at the conclusion of chapter 12. And now we are in the book of glory, which is the lead up to the cross. Jesus arrests, trial, death, and resurrection. And so at the beginning of chapter 13, the opening verses of this passage I take to be somewhat of a prologue to the second act of the Gospel of John. And this prologue points to Christ's death and to the love that he has for his disciples. If we look at the passage beginning in verse 1, it says, Now, before the feast of Passover, the timeline of events between John and the other Gospels is something that's debated among New Testament scholars. Some take these events in chapter 13 to be a different day than the Last Supper. I take all of these events as revolving around the Last Supper and that the foot washing occurs in conjunction with the Last Supper on the night that Jesus would to be, was to be arrested. John mentions it's the time of Passover. This is the third time in the Gospel of John that Jesus has observed the Passover holiday. And just as a reminder, Passover is the annual Jewish holy day, which celebrates God redeeming the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. When God had brought a series of plagues upon the Egyptians, and after that he did one final judgment where he struck down the firstborn of all the Egyptians. And for the Israelites, God had given instruction to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood on the door of their household. 
And those who did it as an act of faith were passed over. And there were also instructions for a celebratory meal, which was to be done annually. And that's the meal in which Jesus and his disciples are about to partake. The next thing to observe in this opening section. Still in verse 1, it says, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Nothing that happens in the ministry and life of Christ is outside of the sovereign will and plan of the Lord. As we've mentioned throughout this gospel, John constantly talks about Jesus' hour, referring to the hour of glory of Christ going to the cross. And here, the hour has come. Jesus is in control. He knows what's about to happen. But his hour to give his life has come. As the first Passover required sacrifices for the Israelites, that ultimately pointed forward to the true Passover when the ultimate sacrifice would be made for the redemption and forgiveness of the world in Jesus sacrificing himself so that we could be forgiven. The verse says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Again, the first 12 chapters of John are focused on Jesus ministering to the world, performing signs, teaching of who he is. That is the message going to the world. That Jesus is the divine son of God who reveals the light and glory of God in the world and who brings the promise of eternal life. But over the next five chapters specifically, it's just Jesus and his disciples. And that's where his attention is. John mentions the love that Jesus has for his disciples. Interesting thing to note about the Gospel of John. In chapters 2 through 12, the word love is found just 12 times in the Gospel of John. In the next five chapters, it's found 37 times. I mentioned last week the theme of light, that Jesus is the light of the world. In chapters 2 through 12, light is mentioned 32 times in the Gospel of John. In the second half of John, it's not mentioned anywhere. I point all of this out to highlight the shift of themes as the hour of the cross approaches. Verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So Judas has not yet betrayed Jesus, but the wheels are in motion for that to happen. Verse 2 shows us that the plot against Jesus is something that is demonic. Verse 2 also shows contrast to verse 1. The first verse is about a great savior. The second verse is about the great betrayer. But even Judas is being used as part of the divine plan. And later on in this chapter, in this section, Jesus will predict his own betrayal. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, 
Similar to the first verse, this verse points out the divine initiative. And as it closes out the introduction to the events of the second half of John's gospel, that in order for Christ to be glorified and to return to the Father, he must first go to the cross. And so that's the prologue for this opening section. And so what we're going to do with the rest of our time this morning is look at this event in three scenes as Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. And the first scene we look at is foot washing as it points us to the cross, beginning in verses 4 and 5. It says, Rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. The story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples is one that is pretty well known to our culture. Even if you only know a little bit about the Bible, it's an event that you've probably heard of. Washing feet was a common custom in the ancient Greco-Roman world. If people were traveling to meet someone, roads were dusty and dirty. People were usually walking to where they went, oftentimes barefoot or in some sort of primitive sandal. And so naturally your feet would get dirty. But foot washing was always done either by a slave or a child or perhaps by the person themselves whose feet they were. And so I think it's really a struggle for us to appreciate the weight of this event. Foot washing was always, always, always done by someone who was on a lower rung of the social ladder than the person whose feet were being washed. I'll say that again. The person washing the feet was always someone who societally was on a lower, pl a lower plane than the person whose feet they were washing. There is not one single example in Greco-Roman literature of a superior ever washing the feet of his subordinates with the exception of Jesus. It was absolutely radical. To the disciples, it would have been shocking to see Jesus washing their feet. If you were to meet the Queen of England, there are all sorts of protocols that are in place. Everyone is supposed to walk behind the Queen. Even her late husband, Prince Philip, was not supposed to walk level with her. He was supposed to walk behind her. You're never supposed to leave a room that she's in. She leaves the room first. If you're dining with the queen, you don't just dig in. You wait for her to take a bite first. You never turn your back on her. There are protocols for how to dress. You wouldn't go wearing a bathing suit to meet the queen. There are protocols for how you address her. You don't just say, hey, Liz, what's up? You say, your majesty or your royal highness. There are protocols on touch. You don't just run up and give her a big hug. And on and on and on. Almost to the point of making it not worth it. But, but all of these formal expectations for what you're supposed to do in her presence. Now imagine at a formal gathering, if the queen were to take out a bucket of water and a sponge and start just washing people's feet. 
That would be shocking. But I would argue that it was still even more shocking in Jesus' day. Because foot washing isn't a cultural custom with really established and set cultural expectations for us the way it would have been in the first century. You, you don't go to someone's house and expect for them to have a bucket of water for you to wash your feet in. That's just not, we have shoes. It's, it's not our world that we live in. But in Jesus' day, it would have been expected and a custom for a revered person to have the most lowly person there wash his feet. And so Jesus is taking the most menial and lowly task that a person in his world could possibly take. He's taking on the role of a slave. And that would have been viewed as something that was absolutely beneath Jesus. Again, it would be shocking. For ancient religious teachers and ancient Jewish rabbis, sure, humility was a virtue that they prized and valued. But not in ways that went totally contrary to social customs. And so Peter's reaction in verse 6, I think, is actually pretty understandable. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus is the greatest figure who has ever lived. And the disciples spent three years traveling with him. They knew him. They heard his teachings. They saw his signs. And so Peter asks how Jesus could possibly lower himself to wash his feet. Verse 7, Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Now, that's an interesting thing to say. You do not understand. What is there to understand about someone washing your feet? But afterward, you will understand. From the beginning of this passage, it's established that the hour of Christ's death has come. And what verse 7 is showing us is that this story is not primarily about feet. It's primarily about the cross. That afterward, Peter will understand. That in looking back, after Jesus has gone to the cross, died and rose, that looking back to the foot washing will have its truer and ultimate meaning. Later on, looking back at the event, Peter will understand the significance of what Jesus did on that night. He will understand the supreme humility of Christ. He will understand that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He will understand that before Jesus displayed the most scandalous and outrageous show of love by giving his life for the world, he showed the most outrageous and scandalous display of humility in serving his disciples by washing their feet. And looking back, it will be understood that the washing of the feet on the night before he went to the cross 
was a symbol of the cleansing of the whole person in the gospel. But on that night, as Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, Peter doesn't yet understand. And that'll become clear in his response. And that brings us to our second point. Foot washing points us to the Spirit. Verse 8. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Like I said a moment ago, this story is not primarily about feet. It's about the cross. It's about salvation. It's about the forgiveness for our sins. And it is that washing to which Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Keep in mind that this is not the first time in the Gospel of John where Jesus uses illustrations from the natural world to make spiritual points. John chapter 3, Jesus interacts with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And he tells Nicodemus that he must be born again. Nicodemus is dumbfounded and thinks that Jesus is talking about a literal rebirth when Jesus is talking about a spiritual rebirth. John chapter 4, Jesus interacts with a Samaritan woman at a well, and he offers her living water from which she will never thirst. The woman thinks that Jesus is literally talking about water when he's actually talking about the new life that is brought forth by the Spirit. And here in John chapter 13, Jesus talks of the necessity of washing feet. He's not talking about feet. Ultimately, he's pointing to the cross and a symbolic spiritual cleansing. And the message that Jesus gives to Peter is true for every person in the world. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. It's a washing from sin. That's what makes sense of the passage. It's not about feet. It's about the cross. Jesus hasn't literally washed any of our feet. Does that mean that we can't be saved? Of course not. But he washes us in his blood, through his spirit, and in his grace by going to the cross. And that is the washing that if we do not have... We have no share with Christ. We have no inheritance with Christ. And we have no forgiveness through Christ. So Jesus tells Peter that he must be washed. And as we saw with Nicodemus. And as we saw with the Samaritan woman at the well. Peter takes it literally. Thinking that Jesus is literally talking about what he's doing with the soap and water. Verse 9. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Classic exuberance that we see from Peter. When he hears what Jesus, is, what Jesus has said, he wants his whole body washed. But that's not what's necessary. Because it is the washing of the feet, which is symbolic of the cleansing of the soul. Verse 10, Jesus will explain why Peter's request is unnecessary. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. 
And you are clean, but not every one of you. Again, Peter is focused merely on the physical aspect of washing his feet. Jesus is talking about the spiritual reality of being washed in his grace. Peter has already been washed by Christ, set apart by Christ, forgiven by Christ. And so when Peter says that he wants his hands and his head washed, it's unnecessary because he's already clean. He will be no more forgiven by the water being dumped on him. Because grace is not partial. We're not partially washed by Christ. Jesus fully saves us. He fully forgives us. Notice at the end of verse 10, Jesus says to Peter, You are clean, but not every one of you. Referring to Judas. Verse 11. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Tim Keller brings up this point about Judas. That he was a disciple who served Jesus. He's with Jesus here. Judas has his feet washed by Jesus. Judas was part of the greatest small group, the greatest Bible study that ever existed. He had the greatest pastor, greatest spiritual leader anyone ever had. And Judas is in that room and he has his feet washed and he's about to betray the Lord. I make this point often, but just being in the church doesn't save you. Having been baptized, participating in communion, knowing your Bible, all of those things are good. But none of those are what save you. It is having your soul washed by Jesus, your soul cleansed by Jesus, that brings the promise of eternal life. And only that, as it says in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is only through Jesus. And we come to the third scene. Foot washing points us to humility. Verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? They don't really understand. The true meaning and significance is not yet grasped. And so Jesus asks a rhetorical question. But nevertheless, he questions the disciples to question what he's done. Verse 13, Jesus answers his own question. Verses 13 to 15. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. What Jesus is basically saying here is that you have reverence for me, as you should. And with me lowering myself and humbling myself in this way, as your teacher, I am calling you as my students 
to do likewise. He calls his disciples to wash one another's feet. Which begs the question, should we wash each other's feet? I don't know if any of you noticed when you walked in that we have a, a bucket and a sponge in the back. We don't really have that. But. <laughs> should we wash each other's feet? It's sometimes done. I've heard of it done at weddings. The Pope has done it during Easter week before for prison inmates. Some churches take it as a literal command, almost treating foot washing like baptism or communion. But for two reasons, I don't think we should take it that way. First, the Bible never gives foot washing as a universal command. It's mentioned only other, one other place in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 5.10, in a context where it's talking about foot washing as a show of hospitality, which makes sense because culturally that's what it was. But we don't see it as a command to the whole world. Secondly, we don't see foot washing viewed as a sacrament in the early church or in the earliest Christian writings, which means that those who were closest in time to the disciples did not take it that way. Instead, it's the principle that matters, that Jesus has debased himself in the act of washing the feet of his disciples. In some ways, if all we had to do was just take some soap and water and wash someone's feet, in some ways that would be the easy thing. What's not easy, at least for many people, is the principle that leads one to washing the feet of another. And that is showing true humility before someone else. So much of our world is about appearances. Jesus took on the most menial and inglorious task in the world. We can be obsessed with appearances. I've read studies over the years. As there are more cameras in businesses. If it's a common area or a kitchen. That people are more likely to wash their hands. If there's someone nearby. Meaning that people don't so much care about having their hands clean. They care about other people thinking that they care about having their hands clean. The photos people share online of their family. Posed. Retouched. Everyone looking picture perfect. We want to be seen as respectable and competent and good from a good family. Now... Certainly don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that those things are inherently bad. But what can be a problem is when we become obsessed with how we look, how our family looks, how we're perceived and thought of. We can become slaves to that. And we do live in a very vain and visual world. And that attitude can fly in the face of humility. Of doing what's menial, doing what's lowly, doing what is inglorious. I think of another scene with Jesus and his disciples, quoting from Matthew chapter 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Just to recap, a couple disciples come to Jesus and say, Who's the greatest? Serving the Lord is serving something that is bigger than yourself. Serving things that are of eternal importance and significance. And that's what Jesus calls us to. To serve and to be humble. And that's what Jesus is saying at the end of our passage. When he says, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Again, Jesus sets the example that he was not above humble service and neither are we. We are called to follow Jesus and that includes following his example of humility. Humility can look different for different people. Sometimes it can be doing a task that others maybe don't want to do. We've mentioned before needing volunteers for children's Sunday school. There could be a lot of reasons why we don't want to volunteer. Maybe you don't feel like you know enough about the Bible to teach it. We have a curriculum. We have resources. But we never like to look like we don't fully know what we're talking about. That's just one example. The 1981 movie Chariots of Fire is based on the Scottish track star Eric Liddell. Liddell was born in China to missionary parents. And as a child, he was sent to England for schooling. He excelled in athletics, especially running. He would qualify for the 1924 Olympics, and he was a favorite in the 100 meters. And famously, he sat out that race because it was on a Sunday. During the week, during those Olympics, he would go on to win the gold medal in the 400 meters and the bronze in the 200 meters. A year after, in 1925, he returned to China to follow in his parents' footsteps and serve as a missionary. Aside from two trips back to Europe, he would spend the last 18 years of his life serving in China, including being taken as a prisoner in World War II and put in a Japanese internment camp where he died of brain cancer in 1945, just five months before the camp was liberated. Again, he was a national figure and hero in his native homeland. But he gave that up to serve others as a missionary, turning away the glories of the world to serve. That flies in the face of what so many dream of. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I would argue, was the greatest preacher of the 20th century. Born in 1899, Lloyd-Jones was a brilliant man who became a doctor in England as a young man. In 1927, after he had spent a couple years internally debating, Lloyd-Jones joined the ministry. He accepted the call to become a pastor at a small church in a small town in Wales. I've read before that Lloyd-Jones took something like a 90% pay cut to go from being a doctor to a pastor. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with being a doctor. 
It's probably the most prestigious career in the modern world. You're helping treat the sick. Very respectable. And in the eyes of the world, giving up a medical career and all of its acclaim to be a pastor is crazy. Lloyd-Jones was once asked about giving up being a doctor to become a minister. And he said, I gave up nothing. I received everything. I count it the highest honor that God can confer on any man to call him to be a herald of the gospel. Not primarily focusing on our own glory, but serving with humility. And so the question that I have for this week as we close is, how will you wash the feet of another? Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you would humble us, that we would be faithful in serving you and bringing you honor and glory. Lord, we praise you for your goodness and grace in our lives. May we live every day as people who are growing in the knowledge of you and the love of you and who are serving you in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.